Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Tuesday breakfast. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Good morning. Welcome. Tuesday breakfast who now has an Instagram. Yes, as of like Ooh. a couple of days ago and we made our first post last night. I'm so impressed that of all of us, it was George Maxwell who did our first post. I the most tech savvy of the entire. I group. did have to Google how to how to put. <laughs> is it tag somebody? I don't know. I was going to ask you, and then I was like, no, I can work this out by myself and with you, the internet. I love you, you so it. much, and you did, and it looks really good. It looks Thank very um, very hip. Yeah, very yeah. very. Hip. <laughs> so if you like our show, you can follow us now, and we'll be putting things mm. up. Do you call it a post? Yeah. 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 We're We're posting Instagram.com slash I think three C R Tuesday Breakfast. Yes. Yeah. I know. She's like a what happened? (laughs) She likes straight. Where have you been? (laughs) I've been learning. That's where I've been that's why I was gone so long. Okay. Getting 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 knowledge on technology. Yes. (laughs) So we have an amazing Yeah. um, Yeah. Amazing interview guests. Um, who's that first person? Oh, that's mm. actually an interview that I'll be doing with um, with Janine Saligari, who is a part of the Anna Stewart Memorial Project and has been part of the Australian Services Union, and we'll be, we'll be talking about the rally today. Mm. Um, so for workers' rights, which will be a trades hall at 9.30. It's going to be massive. Yeah, apparently it's, it's um, expected to be one of the largest rallies in Melbourne history. Mm. Wow. What, I, what time, so? So I think people are getting there around 9.30, but maybe it kicks off officially at 10.30. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I was reading, um, uh, while I was waiting for you this morning, I was reading that Kelly O'Dwyer, who, uh, she's got to be like the Minister for Jobs or Employment or something like that, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, she was saying that you can expect these um, these disruptions to the working day under Labor, like as if anybody's going to yeah, think that this is a bad thing. But anyway. Yeah, and apparently um, employers have tried to prevent mm. um, workers from attending. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting, that attitude towards Actually, rallying. Yeah, I don't know what... Does your workplace have any... Oh, we probably can't talk about this on air, can we? I think you were de- definitely allowed to. I mean, legally, I, and this is something we'll talk about in this interview, but that, mm. and you would know a lot about this as well, that you can't prevent your workers from attending values. No, but I also... Like, you can't prevent them legally, but I, I often wonder, in particular jobs, just like what the tone of the place is. Yes. And if it's, yeah. yeah. And some people would have kind of more, I guess, possibilities to actually, you know... To mm, go, like I can't depending go. on their job. I can't yeah. today. I like physically cannot be there. Yeah, because of work, which is ironic. Mm. 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 So and we then, also, yes. I know, I am so pumped about this. I feel like a bit of a nerd, but bear with me. Bear with me. <laughs> um, we have two legal academics from La Trobe University's Law mm. School, um, who very kindly giving us their time to talk about 
they wrote this great article in the New South Wales University University of New South Wales Law School Journal um, about gendered hate speech in Australia. So, you know, how how it looks um, and why it's such a risk to women and how it kind of underpins a lot of what we're seeing happening in society and sort of their proposals for enshrining it in law, which is really interesting. That sounds awesome. Mm. And then, oh my God. And then. (laughs) And then. And then we'll be talking to Fiona Patton, who is the leader of the Reason Party, formerly known as the Australian Sex Party, um, about uh, the national apology yesterday. And what this means, and um, Fiona Patton's been a, a pretty big advocate for this issue for a long time, um, was one of the first public figures to actually uh, call for a royal commission. Um, so it would be pretty incredible to actually speak to her directly about what this means and, and what we can hope for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then. And then. <laughs> and then. Where have I heard that from? Um, so... At, was it eight ten or have we? At eight o'clock. Eight you. o'clock. Yes. <laughs> so at eight o'clock we'll be hearing from Carrie Lee. Six. Carrie Lee is mm. like an incredible broadcaster. She does the show Black Noise on um, at Three CRs, and we will definitely play the promo. Um, but she is here to talk about the um, film festival Black Screen that's showing at Footscray Community Arts Centre. So it's like a one night, is it one night? No, it's every Tuesday, I do apologise. It's every Tuesday where they show um, short films by um, Indigenous producers. So we're going to chat to her about why that's important, maybe movies that she's looking forward to, and, yeah, everything's all related. Yeah, we should go. I want to go tonight. Tuesday breakfast excursion. Yes. There's, like, (laughs) four amazing events on tonight. Which is Four. Can people get it together? No, Melbourne do not... Melbourne needs, like, an internal calendar to Mm. stop doing this for us. It's not fair. No, honestly, like, it really isn't because it's usually the same people that go to these Mm. events. And it's really hard to choose between, like... And I know Sarah... Oh, what's what's her face? Oh, my God, I'm so bad with names. Sarah Ahmed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, She's also at Melbourne Uni. She... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. know her. She's really cool. She, yeah, so she, but that's sold out, but I'm hoping to show up and be like, um, I'm the community that you're trying to reach. <laughs> Why don't I have a ticket? Um, but Do it's, it. It's sold out. It's, that's another thing, these academic spaces, they're so hard mm. to access, and mm. it's like you have the tools for my liberation. Yeah. But you're making it hard for me to find those tools. Like, and small, small mm. spaces, like Love the Wheeler Centre. Like, remember, okay... Not the best example, but you know, I've got the, I've got a cold. Mm-hmm. Remember when Juno Diaz first announced that he was coming here? And this was before we knew that mm. he was an abuser. He sold out in like a minute, mm. and that space was so small. And there are so many members of various communities that would have benefited even more than like you know yeah. the privileged communities who are on the Wheeler Centre mailing list or whatever that got that email first. Absolutely, that just missed out on the ticket. And he's yeah. only you know ever doing exclusive like one show. Mm. Mm. That's interesting because it's like who who's at fault here? Mm. Is it like should the artist demand for like a certain audience, or sh- or, or does the can the artist demand? Okay, I'm going to do this part of Willow Center where it's ticketed, but I'm also going to do one that where the like the prices are maybe um, uh, smaller, or you know like or is it or like a POC like, only space? Yeah, or like, like ha- ha- yeah. How do you get around the issue? 
mm. of money because they should get paid for their labor. They do incredible work, mm. as we all agree. But how can the community also be part of those mm. spaces? Because not everyone has money like readily available. Do, do you know what I mean? And most so of us have to sit there and, you know, when we get writers' festival calendars or whatever mm. it is that we want to go to and weigh up, okay, I've got $50 to spend this month on, you know, so, okay, what am I sacrificing here? Um, and that's, it's also our education that we're not, that we have to weigh up there as well because mm. these people are educational speakers. They really are. And you hear mm. about all these stories, like when they come and then they share stories and they always talk about, I was, I had a light bulb moment or I was inspired when I heard this speech. Mm. How many, pe- how many others could potentially be inspired mm. by being here, but they're not here and they're missing out. Anywho, I feel like we can just. I go know, on wow. And on and Should on we do on. some news headlines? Yeah, sure. Um, just a content warning we'll be talking about child sexual abuse in relation to the national apology. And we'll probably give out some numbers later on when we mm-hmm. do the interview with Fiona. Yesterday, Prime Minister Scott Morrison delivered a national apology in the House of Representatives to survivors of institutional child sexual abuse. Former PM Julia Gillard, who called, called for the Royal Commission in 2012, yesterday recognised the many years it has taken to get to the point of a national apology and acknowledged the courage of survivors and their families. Additionally, opposition leader Bill Shorten drew attention to the need for action um, as an important step to go beyond words. The government has also announced it will set up a museum to collect the stories of survivors as well as fund a research centre to raise awareness about child abuse. Addressing the 122 recommendations of the Royal Commission, which ended in 2017, continues, and there are still a number of institutions yet to sign the National Redress Scheme. The last couple of days has thrown into question the victory of independent Karen Phelps in the Wentworth by-election, but it looks as though she will still win the seat. Pre-poll and postal votes showed a significant swing in favour of the Liberal candidate Dave Sharma. However, according to... um, ABC's election specialist, Anthony Green, the counting errors confirmed the ballot paper were tailored correctly for the preference count, but the numbers were written in the wrong columns, creating an incorrect total. Correcting the counting error, Dr. Phelps leads by 1,862 votes. There are still several thousand votes to be counted, but her lead is looking strong. In light of Phelps's success, media commentator Jane Carrow has publicly expressed interest in running against Tony Abbott as an independent in Warringah. The loss, of, the loss of Wentworth will result in the Liberals losing a majority in the House of Representatives. Hey! <laughs> and the New York Times has reported on allegedly leaked documents which reveal that the Trump administration is trying to remove recognition and protections of the rights for trans people under civil rights laws put in place by the Obama administration. This includes attempting to define gender as a biological immutable condition determined by genitalia at birth. Changes to definitions would result in the eradication of the federal recognition of the genders of around 1.4 million Americans. Demonstrations took place over the weekend for trans equality. You can follow the hashtag won't be erased for more on this story. Mm. That's horrific. Yeah, it's, it's actually really scary. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to add that um, I'm not sure how widely this spread because it was announced quite late last night, but um, 11 children were flown from Nauru to Australia yesterday. Um, with their entire families. They were recommended for medical transfer by doctors um, and apparently there are several more children on Nauru who've been recommended to be brought here. So Mm. watch this space.
interesting is that's so that happened when yes last night last night mm. and when did the protest for the kids happen yeah the kids um kids was on sunday interesting it is interesting though i mean with with one of the girls who was brought here um her kidneys have failed um mm. and she was put on life support on the tarmac basically so mm. um optimistically I would like to think that it's because mm. of the protest but also it's just so bad mm. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival With over 30 exhibitors and 3 activity zones come and try different inclusive sports meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge this is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Never do that, Freddie. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full. $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. If you want to have a good Tuesday breakfast on 3CR. Who are we listening to, Ayan? Let me turn my mic on for that. <laughs> I usually have it off. Um, anywho, you did not need to know that. That was <laughs> Solange. Uh, of course, of course. Thank you. Uh, so today working people from around the state will be getting together to rally for workers' rights against rising inequality, falling wages and insecure work. We are joined by a member of the Anna Stewart Memorial Project, Janine Saligari, to discuss today's rally. Janine is part of the Anna Stewart Memorial Project, which we'll talk about shortly. She has been a union member and a delegate for the Australian Services Union since the Equal Pay Campaign in 2012. Additionally, she has worked in the community, um, in the, sorry, in community mental health for over eight years and in the social and community sector for 11 years. She's also a mother watching her daughters enter the workforce. Janine, there's so much prep going on for today, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, us this morning. Thanks, George, for having me. <laughs> so before we chat about today's event, can you tell our listeners about the Anna Stewart Memorial Project that you are involved with? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, so some big shoes to fill. Um, the Anna Stewart Memorial Project, Anna was a journalist uh, when she began her career and saw um, a lot of, you know, discrimination and inequality uh, in her chosen career. So she became an active uh, Victorian unionist from 1974 to 1983. She was a working mum, um, and so combining motherhood with work. Uh, so she was very passionate about equal pay, childcare, uh, maternity leave, and raised awareness of sexual harassment as well. Uh, in 1977, uh, Congress with the ACPU, um, they adopted the Working Women's Charter, and uh, she was the first uh, on uh, the Women's Committee. Um, sadly, we lost Anna Stewart in 1983 at the age of 35 years, but she'd uh, done so much for women in the workforce in that time with her work with various unions, um, which was pretty amazing. Uh, she was all, uh, wanted women to be have access to leadership roles, and uh, that's what Anna Stewart Memorial Project does today. It, uh, it assists women to develop their leadership skills. Mm, wow, she sounds like a pretty incredible woman and a really important initiative to be getting more women involved in union spaces. And hopefully we'll get, we'll get to talk a bit more about feminist considerations within the movement short, shortly. Um, but let's talk about today. What are the main objectives for today's rally? Yeah, the change of the rules. Um, yeah. <laughs> Australia deserves a pay rise. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> There's, a whole, <laughs> There's a whole sort of, I suppose, that covers an umbrella of a whole range of issues um, that affect uh, the community and, and, in particular, working women and, and minority groups within our community. Um, it's about a living wage, but not necessarily a, the minimum wage. It's about the minimum wage being something you can live on. It's uh, reversing penalty rate cuts, closing the gender pay gap, uh, superannuation gap to women so they're not retiring in poverty, um, ending wage theft, um, insecure work, so improving uh, laws and rules around that so we can get more perm- permanent work if people want to request that, improved paid parental leave. Um, this one I'm really passionate about, 10 days paid family violence leave for all workers, um, stronger rights for flexible work, uh, addressing gendered violence in the workplace, um, improving awards. It, so there's a lot under it. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. That's a lot. Um, and in terms of what's sort of been changing over the last couple of years in terms of living expenses and, and wages, can you give us some stats on that? Yeah, so I, I was having a look at this um, last night and, and the lack of broken wages, I suppose, is what, Spurring the union on um, annual change in hourly rates of pay um, has stagnated sort of at 3.26 percent between 1998 to 2018, 20 years span, um, and at the lowest it was at 1.9 percent. Whilst living um, expenses are rising, so GDP on average is at 3.4 percent. So we're we're not keeping up. We're actually falling behind. Um, I was looking at um, Argentina had greater wage growth uh, last quarter at 2.3% compared to Australia at 2.1% for wow. the quarter. So, yeah. yeah, so we can be doing better. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. It means There's that... There's no reason why we can't be. Y- yeah, and, and that, you know, like just basic kind of living expenses and t- being able to support yourself is actually getting harder for a lot of people and to think that we might be going backwards is really concerning. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We, we don't we don't think that's something that happens in Australia, but it is. Yeah, you know, um, and you can see it sort of in a number of areas. Um, you know, if you hear about emergency relief programs, talking about how, you know, it's more people coming to the door, you know, for food relief, you know, because they're in in mortgage stress or they're in other types of financial stress. It's it's food. Mm. And I saw another stat that forty percent of Aussies are in insecure work. You know, that's that's yeah. pretty significant as well. Mm. Well, watching my daughters enter the workforce to gain secure work, it's going to take a long time. Mm. And and you know, if they want to move out of home, you know, they've got um, study or anything to pursue that. It, it makes it virtually impossible because how do, how do they keep the roof over their head and the food on the table? Yeah, yeah. It's insecure work. Yeah, and so. Will there be much focus today on the working rights of workers who are women and non-binary, those living with disabilities, people of colour, sex workers and LGBTIQA plus folks? It's really inclusive. This is open to the whole community uh, to come along. I think when we start to look at um, living wage and when we start to pull apart some of those uh, things I was talking about initially, um, insecure work, I think you'll find that uh, the cohort we ju- you just mentioned, George, usually are highly represented in those areas, and that's why it's going to be so important to stand side by side with them to ensure that we get some of these laws changed and some of these rights. They're also highly represented, unfortunately, in the family violence stats. So that 10 days paid family violence leave also is going to be uh, something that is really important to, to uh, the cohort, yeah, mm. disability, you know, LGBTIQA plus uh, comrades and friends. Yeah. yeah, and so some of those things that you mentioned, like family violence uh, as, as a workplace issue, um, paid parental leave, insecure and low-pay work, really fighting for, you know, addressing these particular things would certainly be useful in terms of, um, you know, meeting the needs of all workers. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's, it's something that, um, yeah, it's, it's, if um, we have that, we can actually create a, a stronger economy because we're able to contribute better to the workforce. Mm. So it, it really does create a, a win-win whether we look at it um, from an economic viable uh, stance or whether we look at it from an equality stance because people want to work. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so there's also been some um, controversy concerning people trying to attend today's rally, such as employees being threatened by employers. Is it actually legally possible for employers to prevent their workers from attending rallies? If you were rostered on to work today or um, and, and some enterprise agreements will say that, you know, um, if you're operationally required uh, at work, then you'd you'd need to be attending work. But if you've taken annual leave or an ADO or you're not rostered on for work today, there should be no coercion coming from employers that you can't attend. Of course, don't rock up in uniform. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There there should be, yeah, there should not be coercion. And I I 
do know and I am aware that there are employers out there that will make staff feel quite uncomfortable because they want to stand mm. up um, and be heard. And, and it does, you know, for some reason it threatens employers um, when in actual fact, you know, it could be a win-win for yeah. the whole community, including employers and organisations. Yeah, and it's expected to be one of the largest rallies in Melbourne's history, which is very exciting. Um, and I've heard that um, the uh, the um, Anna Stewart Memorial Project has some cool things planned. Are you able to tell us a bit about that, or is that a surprise that you have to attend it, and it, find it, out? It's a little bit of a surprise. All right, but, cool. <laughs> um, towards the end of the rally, um, at, at the, yeah, as we kind of get to that final point uh, around Flinders Street, You'll, you'll see it. You, you won't miss it. So, <laughs> All right, so great. check it out. Yeah, I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. And so for those listeners who would like to attend the rally, how can they get down there this morning? Okay, so we're kicking off at 10.30 a.m. We're all meeting at Trades Hall at the corner of Victorian Ligon Street in Carlton. And more than there are, everyone is welcome uh, because Australia deserves a pay rise. Woo! <laughs> We're all cheering here. <laughs> Janine, thank you so much for coming on Tuesday Breakfast. I really hope that you get the turnout that you're expecting and we really look forward to hearing more about the ACTU's campaigns. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, George. The National Sustainable Living Festival is Australia's flagship sustainability event and applications are now open for the event in February 2019. To celebrate its 20 years, SLF is calling all changemakers, presenters, artists, performers and creatives to submit their applications for the biggest disruption yet. There's never been a more vital time to get involved in this important festival. Apply now. Go to slf.org.au. A 3CR supporter. This year's Tilda, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, is packed with stories that represent the rich tapestry of trans and gender diverse people's lives. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer, along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com. A 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR. 
I've got a track I want to play now by an artist called Edda Bond, and this song is called Surface. Yeah, you're pretty fun. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Lauren, Anya, I mean Anya, Ayan, <laughs> Anya's on her way here, and George, who I'm looking at. And you just heard the song, what's the song called? Surface by Etta Bond. And now, tying in nicely to what we were talking about earlier in the program, um, about academic spaces sometimes being a bit inaccessible and these ideas being um, hidden behind, you know, up in ivory towers, we have two academics in the studio. <laughs> Hello. Yay. So we are joined by Dr. Nicole Shackleton and Dr. Laura, I've just closed that, Laura Griffin, my apologies, no both of La Trobe University Law School, yes. um, who have just written an article, two articles, one in the conversation, which is on our Facebook page, um, and one in the University of New South Wales Law Journal, um, both of which are absolutely fantastic. Welcome to 3CR, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and first of all, I have to say thank you for the promotion. I haven't yet finished my PhD, <laughs> but it is very nice oh. for the first time to be referred to well, Dr. Shackleton, so I'm looking forward to that happening in, oh. in the future. You wait for all of those plane tickets yes, in the future. I do. You <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, so let's talk a bit about your article. So it's about the concept of gendered hate speech in yes. Australian law, mm-hmm. which... Um, is interesting and not something I've ever heard talked about ever, I think. So maybe let's just start with what is the status of hate speech generally in Australian law to kind of lay the land? Yes. Uh, so before starting, we just want to acknowledge that, you know, there was the two of us writing the article and then we had another two people <laughs> with us, um, Danielle Walt and Tanya D'Souza. So thank you very much for them. In terms of the status of hate speech in Australia, our research our research and, and also research from some other academics has pretty much demonstrated that it's very piecemeal, patchwork and totally inconsistent across jurisdictions. Some jurisdictions have criminal hate speech laws, some have civil, some have both. And then obviously we have the Commonwealth jurisdiction as well. The other issue is that the identity traits uh, or the characteristics that are protected are completely mm-hmm. inconsistent. So race is the most protected trait across almost all jurisdictions. Then there's religion in some jurisdiction. Uh, jurisdictions. Sorry, We have uh, intersex status in some more jurisdictions as well. Mm-hmm. But then when we come to gender and, and sexuality, sexuality is covered in a number of jurisdictions. But then gender, the term gender identity is used in some jurisdictions mm-hmm. And our research um, and comments from the New South Wales, recent changes to New South Wales hate speech laws demonstrate that this is more about protecting 
um, transgender people from hate speech and not about gender more broadly. Mm. So that's where our research has taken us to this point. Mm. And like I said to you just out in the kitchen before, yeah. that terrifies me yes. under this federal government to yes. not have any kind of consistent kind of protection. Yes. Yeah. And, and inconsistency across laws is a problem we have in Australia with all yeah. the different states and, and Commonwealth as well. You know, we see it in so many different types of law, but in hate speech in particular. Mm. And so the term gendered hate speech, like what is that and why why gendered rather than sexist or some other kind of language? Okay, uh, gendered hate speech uh, could be defined in a couple of different ways if we are looking uh, sort of from the legal definitions. So a narrow way to define it would be as vilification mm-hmm. um, and legally that means conduct that incites hatred against uh, serious contempt for or severe ridicule of a person or a whole class of persons Mm -hmm. based on a particular attribute, so we would say based on gender. Mm -hmm. Um, A broader definition would be, uh, like we see in the Commonwealth uh, Racial Discrimination Act, so this would be offensive behaviour is behaviour that is likely to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate another person based on their, we would say, gender instead of race then. So I don't really want to uh, repeat, you know, horrible misogynist statements mm-hmm. uh, on the radio for everybody. <laughs> Thank <here>. you. <laughs> um, yes. But I think we can already see uh, a lot of instances of this in the public arena. Controversial uh, examples, for instance, the way that um, statements about Carolyn Wilson have been mm. the subject of controversy, or. Um, the sort of interchange between Senators Leon Helm and Hanson Young. Mm-hmm. So we see these things arising. It's just that gendered hate speech isn't uh, a term that has often been used to talk about this phenomenon. Mm. The choice between gendered and sexist um, wasn't an easy one. We, we really conferred quite a lot as a team about our choice of language. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, we went with gendered for a couple of reasons. The first is that we really wanted it to be as broad and inclusive as possible. So rather than reproducing that sex binary of male and female, um, we wanted um, to recognise that people who are intersex or transgender people um, can also be the subject of gendered hate speech, um, so regardless of biology. Mm -hmm. Um, And secondly... Uh, you would have seen in our article a lot of our um, arguments are about language and the power of language. So by using the term gendered hate speech, um, we're sort of highlighting how uh, speech is involved in how gender is produced socially and constructed. Mm. So gendered hate speech um, is a sort of appropriate terminology because we're looking at how this hate speech is based on gender but also reproduces gender as well. Mm. So. Yeah. So interesting. <laughs> Love it. Um, so you did mention earlier, um, Dr. Shackleton. Thank you. <laughs> that there are, um, there are a few ways that hate speech and so gendered hate speech might get caught by existing laws mm-hmm. yep. in kind of in an unintended way. Yes. Um, but you, like in the article, the contention that you put forward is that it's not enough. Yeah. What, like, why? What is this based on? Well, that's a very good question and, you know, one that is posed. Whenever you talk about hate speech for any identity trait, that is a question that's posed. Well, we already have laws, so why have more? There's, you know, two reasons. One is that there are gaps. Mm-hmm. So if we look at anti-discrimination law, for example, that would certainly protect people from uh, gendered hate speech, but only in certain contexts, you know, in employment context, in the provision of goods and services. So anything outside of that mm. is not protected. We also have, you know, um, recent changes to cyberbullying laws, which is 
good um, and the criminal laws, but they're very individualistic. So they're mostly focused on one person's individual experiences of gender hate speech, which can be really horrible. But we're not seeing anything that protects um, women and society from very general and broad gendered hate speech. So if we look at some of the comments by incels um, mm-hmm. or so-called pickup artists, really um, men's rights activists, toxic masculinity groups, those types of things, they make very gender, uh, broad gendered statements that are really designed to denigrate women en masse, you know, calling for legalisation of rape and all these types of horrible things. There's no law that actually protects mm. us from that and no avenues for... Um, uh, women and, and communities to seek any redress. So we really want to see gendered, uh, gendered hate speech in law, prohibited by law, to cover those types of situations. Mm. And you've said, flowing from that in your article, that creating that kind of framework of gendered hate speech is therefore symbolically important yep. as well. Yep. Um, is that related? Like, what? How did you Definitely. mean that? Yeah. So that's, I guess, the second reason why we want to see it in law. It's symbolically important because there are a lot of identity traits that are protected, as we said, very inconsistently, but they are protected by anti-hate speech laws. The fact that gender isn't is very significant. It demonstrates to the population, to women, to society in general, that this isn't important and that, uh, you know, the state, it isn't worth the state intervening or the state providing any kind of protection. And so in order... Um, it's symbolically important to have gender included so that we feel that it's something worth prohibiting. I've just got to shiver. <laughs> when we started this project, I think um, that, that language was really foreign to us yes. too. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the more that we thought about it and researched about it and wrote about it, we thought, yeah, this is to, to give a language to it, to give a term to this phenomenon that yeah. we already know and we already see and are familiar with. But to call it hate speech... Is, is an empowering thing, yeah, I think, absolutely. and for law to reflect that. And I've had, really com- yeah, I've had comments from academics that have, in response to our article that have said, wow, you're really, this is really interesting, calling it hate speech changes the dynamic of how we talk about this. Yeah. So, you know, that's it's almost really like important. When, um, when people first started calling family violence terrorism, right. yes. domestic terrorism, it, yep. just that, that sort of shift in framing. Yep. Um, so... We are getting close to the end of our um, our slot. So um, I just wanted to find out, though, and I feel like you've touched on it a little bit so far, but what is the connection that you see then between gendered hate speech and then the ways that we're seeing patriarchy playing out in violent or otherwise controlling kind of ways in our community? Okay, that's a huge question. I think some of the... Um, a really important one, though, mm. thank you. I think some of those connections are already starting to be understood and mapped out by different people. Um, I think there are two main ways that they're connected. On the one hand, we see that language is really one of the powerful ways in which people's minds and attitudes are shaped, um, and that influences the way that people treat each other. Mm. So, um, as an example, in our study, we refer to a report by Vic Health about um, preventing violence before it occurs, and it shows that men who hold traditional views about gender roles and relationships um, have a strong belief in male dominance and things like this are more likely to... um, perpetrate violence against their particularly female um, intimate partners. So those connections
decisions are starting to be made mm. um, in by the government. Likewise, we have the sort of federal government's Stop It at the Start campaign and, and um, campaigns like this, recognising the the way um, the way that language legitimises violence, particularly against women. You know, sayings like "boys will be boys" and things like that. The harmful nature of that language and the way that it feeds into violence is, I think, becoming a real part of public consciousness and awareness now. Um, on the other hand, language can also be seen as a tool of patriarchy and, and misogyny. So in the article, we, we draw on the work of uh, Kate Mann and uh, her book in particular, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. It really helped us to theorise misogyny sort of as the, the police force for patriarchy. Mm. So language is a way um, that women are policed in their behaviour uh, excluded from spaces that are said to be rightly, you know, m- male spaces, mm. and a way to make them feel unsafe um, if they step outside their particular sort of gender roles. So language is shaping how we think, but also language can be a weapon in that mm. sense. And I think um, hate speech is one of the sort of great tools of, mm. of misogyny under yep. under patriarchy to to make women afraid and to try to make women comply with um, various roles and expectations. Mm. So, yeah, sort of pointing at that and saying that, that that's what's going on here in that speech, I think, is a really important thing. Mm. And so, in a perfect world, you get a phone call tomorrow from the Australian Law Reform Commission and they say, all right, you've got it, gendered hate speech, it's on the map, we're going to do it. What, like, what is the best case scenario? What would that look like? Well, that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Firstly, we'd throw a party and yes. then we'd get to work. Yeah. Uh, well, as Laura mentioned, you know, we formulated in our article two different types of gendered hate speech definitions, legal definitions. There's a more conservative one that's focused on harm to the community, and then there's a more progressive one that's focused on um, victim orientated, so how the victim perceives the hate speech. So we prefer the more um, progressive definition. We we want anything to be really victim-centric. And researchers like um, Catherine Gelber and Luke McNamara around Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act have emphasised the importance of that victim-centric definition for the effectiveness of that law. So... We've, that's the first thing we want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, Something more like the offensive behaviour. Yeah. Um, so like yeah. impact, not intent, that idea. Yes, right. yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess also, you know, potentially both civil and criminal. Um, but I should say, you know, my PhD research is on this topic. And so at the end of my research, I hope to propose some more concrete mm-hmm. law reform options. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for coming in so early and joining us in the studio. Thank you. It's been fabulous. I will pray to the law reform gods. Yes, (laughs) as will we. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law. 6pm Tuesdays. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. 
you look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country, well there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You're listening to Tuesday Brecky on 3CR, and that was, of course, Beyonce Formation. Yeah, sick. <laughs> I read it off the computer screen. <laughs> I, can't, I can't lie about that. <laughs> okay, so now we are very honoured to be joined on the line by Fiona Patton, who I'm sure for most of our listeners requires no introduction, so I'll try and keep this brief. Ms Patton is a Victorian Parliament Upper House member and leader of the Reason Party, formerly known as the Australian Sex Party up until last year. She has decades of experience as an advocate for the rights of sex workers, adult retailers, HIV AIDS and HIV AIDS groups. Since being elected to represent the northern metropolitan region of Victoria in 2014, she has fought for the introduction of safe accessing zones for abortion clinics, drug reform, voluntary assisted dying laws, as well as addressing issues concerning wealth inequality. Specific to today's interview, in light of Scott Morrison's apology just yesterday, Patton was one of the first public figures to call for a royal commission into institutional child sexual abuse, which was eventually announced by Gillard in 2012. Thank you so much, Fiona Patton, for joining Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Uh, Good morning. (laughs) So yesterday was clearly a very significant moment in this movement of which you have been a part of for many years, but I was hoping to backtrack a bit to 2000 when you published uh, the list of 650 pedophile priests titled Hypocrites. You and others faced huge backlash in a period uh, where there was widespread denial. Can you elaborate on the responses at this time and how did you imagine this movement would progress? Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't know what I, I could imagine back then, but in 2000, when we published that book, Hypocrites, which basically just laid out a list of the 650 uh, church employees or employees from religious institutions who had sexually abused children and been prosecuted for it, we sent it to every federal, state and local politician, as well as every church we could find in Australia. And we got a huge backlash from it. Uh, you know, ironically, um, Bruce Baird, who was the predecessor to Scott Morrison in the seat of Cook in Cronulla in, in New South Wales, he sent it back to us saying, you should be absolutely ashamed of yourself. How dare you do something like this? You know, it was like we had committed a crime by exposing those that had committed the crimes. Um, we had Tasmanian senators rip it up into tiny little pieces and send it back to us. We got death threats, but we also got phone calls from, from um, people like Chrissy Foster who said, thank you, we have been wanting somebody else to call this out. Um, so I think, look, it's wonderful that we've got the apology. I'm not convinced that it, that it won't be seen as hollow in, in years to come, but... I think we do need to remain optimistic that the organisations that perpetrated these horrendous and dreadful crimes actually do come up to the plate and and compensate the people that they um, harmed and abused so dreadfully. Mm, and it's quite shocking to hear that at that time exposing those truths would have been met with with, with such kind of 
hatefulness, I suppose. I know. You know, it, and it was... I, but I'm not... I, you know, I'm, sometimes I'm just not sure how much of that has changed. So while we're all saying it's shameful and we're all saying it's awful, we haven't actually... Some of the people that were exposed in that Royal Commission haven't been charged, haven't been prosecuted. You know, very few states in Australia are, are calling on mandatory reporting for church organisations. Uh, you know, most of the churches haven't signed up to the redress scheme yet, uh, and no one seems to be calling them out for that. Mm. I, I, I'm... Yes, I want to get to the, yeah, I I really want to get to the redress scheme in a moment. I just want to ask you Mm. another question about kind of how, how this has developed, um, in the last 20 years. So obviously, you know, as I guess you've touched on, the apology is quite overdue and for many a little too late. Could you comment Mm. on the consequences of the federal government's inability to act over 20 years ago when many of these cases were coming to light? Well, yeah. I don't think we have to look much past the Fosters when we look at their their two daughters yeah. who, if this had occurred 18 years ago, those two girls would be alive and well. Uh, I think that there are, there are many lives that have been lost in the last 18 years because of victims just not being able to... Um, to get the help that they needed, to to be to to remove themselves from the shame that they've been feeling over the dreadful crimes that were committed against them. Um, you know, I think also the churches you know, and the church the whole time has just been in denial about this. You know, at no point have they kind of opened up and said, "Right, what we've done is wrong." You know, even just even just last. Last month, I was appro- I was approaching the Anglican Church, uh, Anglican Diocese about um, Bishop Hollingsworth, and they, if you go to their website and say if you think you've been sexually abused, phone us, not phone the police. Mm. So it's like they still have not learned, even after um, the Royal Commission and. Um, and the exposure, and the exposure that 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 and trans, and lo, and sunlight that 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 commission provided on this. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it's just been such a long process, and clearly that has pretty significant consequences for a lot of people. Um, and you talked, yeah, but not for the not for the perpetrators. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and you've talked a lot about the importance of the separation between church and state. What are your thoughts on this apology being delivered by a Pentecostal Prime Minister? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that it was it was the, our only atheist Prime Minister that called for the Royal Commission, mm, yeah. and you know our deeply religious ones, being Abbott, Rudd, Turnbull, um, really didn't seem to care so much for it at, at all. Uh, I, I think it's you know certainly Scott Morrison uh, gave a a very forthright apology yesterday uh, and you know as an evangelical Christian I hope he does bring those religious organizations to the table and 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 to, to, to for further scrutiny I mean one thing is that these organizations just are not transparent they're not transparent financially they're not transparent organizationally they are completely um, exempt from any of the rules and regulations that we have on other organisations that provide 
some level of transparency, some level of um, evaluation of the organisations that just is is not available to these to these organisations. Yeah, just they, they don't need to put in a tax return. They don't need to put out public fiduciary statements. When I was looking at a Catholic insurance company um, the other day and looking at their financial report, it's like. <laughs> I think it was about 20 pages, but half of that was just the biographies of the board members. You know, and this is a multi-billion dollar company. And, you know, it, any other company of that size would have very um, broad and wide-reaching um, uh, reporting and, yeah. and required to do that. So I do think we need to question the very uh, the tax exemptions of these organisations, also the fact that we that we fund so many of these organisations to do work, whether it's um, education, health, palliative care, um, homelessness, treatment, and they're exempt from discrimination laws, they're exempt from tax laws, um, and they seem to be exempt from any form of, of real scrutiny of their organisation. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly, by the sounds of it, a lot of, a lot of issues to be thinking about in terms of, and particularly the Catholic Church and lack of transparency. I would like to um, to ask you about some of the about the Catholic Church's responses to the Royal Commission's recommendations, particularly um, lifting the seal of confession. Um, and the fact that they've responded saying that it impinges on religious liberties and they've argued that children would be less safe if mandatory reporting of confessions was required because a perpetrator or victim would be less likely to raise abuse in confession. How would you respond to this argument? Oh, hogwash. Mm. Absolute hogwash. And, and really, <laughs> you know, this is some sort of... You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's radio, that's why I use that word. Yeah, great, um, we yeah. love it. <laughs> love it. But, um, no, I, would, I, I have much stronger words for that. Yeah, this is a, you know, this is, what, a 12th century canon law... Um, that is not relevant to our 21st century, now that they've been exposed as covering up um, these horrendous crimes, why do they think we should trust them to, to look after the, the, to look after the children and to report the abusers? Why should we trust them? We, they haven't done it for, for 100 years or they haven't done it ever. So why do they think that we should believe them when they say, oh no, let us keep these secrets and then we'll deal with it properly. And if, if you don't let us keep these secrets full, then people will be less safe. I, it, it's just extraordinary. It is just extraordinary. And the fact that, you know, this is, they, they argue that this is about their religious freedom. I mean, frankly, these guys have got so much freedom. Uh, it's, you know, they should be embarrassed when we see that religious freedoms report come down, that in fact these guys are immune to, to so much of the regulation and legislation and just good behaviour that the rest of us follow. Mm. You know, I, I think it shows a real lack of moral compass to, to even suggest that, um, that, the, that these, these organisations shouldn't, shouldn't be responsible and shouldn't have mandatory reporting. Um, it's just extraordinary, and it just it it seems to me it's like have you learned nothing mm. over this? Yeah. Oh, we're really sorry, but we'll look after it in our own way, just like we haven't been able to do, and we've had a royal commission because we have they haven't been able to look after it. 
um, yeah, it, it gets me um, it gets me really cross. Yeah, understandably. Why can't they just listen to the recommendations? I mean, it seems quite simple. That's right. Yeah, and really, they should just saying yes to anything. You know, frankly, frankly, they you know they should be putting forward names. Um, they should be sending people into police stations to confess, not into confessionals to confess. Mm. Um, you know, and and the fact to, and to think that they they shouldn't undergo the same sort of scrutiny that we expect from our teachers, from our doctors, um, from our nurses, from the rest of society, that some somehow that they are more morally special when when as as the Royal Commission has shown they are some of the worst offenders in our society. Mm. Now, when we, in 2000, when we looked at that, when we went through looking at the prosecutions, we looked at all of them. You know, we didn't just look at religious organisations, we looked at all of them, but it's just that almost all of them came from religious organisations. You know, you didn't see non-religious organisations. And imagine, imagine if, you know, in 2000 we'd exposed that there were 600 prosecutions from the adult industry yeah um, you know, or that there was six or it came from the sport you know the sporting world that you know this would have been closed down there would have been yeah. absolute transparency put in place um and you know and, and these guys still seem to think that they are above that level of scrutiny it, it's Peter's belief and then clearly we need to look at you know specific factors within these institutions and so considering another recommendation from the from the royal commission on voluntary celibacy um the australian mm. catholic bishops conference has stated that it will consider this but is skeptical of the connection between celibacy and child sexual abuse in your opinion in terms mm. of prevention how important is this particular recommendation Look, I think it, I think it certainly needs to be um, it certainly needs to be in, investigated. I'm I'm probably more placed that we need to get rid we need to get rid of we need to create greater we know that greater diversity in organisations creates a a better um, a better environment. So the fact that these um, organisations uh, are run by men only. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, that I think trying to, I think they should be looking at how they can improve it. And I'm not sure with celibacy. I mean, I just, I think celibacy is just, it's daft. But, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. whether they you know, whether that, whether that is the reason they abuse, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, I think what, what I do know is that you've got people, You've got people who go into these cloistered lives um, at a very young age with no life experience, and you know, I, I get the impression that they're actually just incredibly stunted. You know, they they haven't they haven't matured like the rest of us. They haven't, you know, had families, have looked after looked after families, loved somebody else in in a deep and intimate way, um, and so they they're. You know, for them to be providing us with guidance when really they're so um, they're, they're so ignorant to to the lives of normal Australians because mm-hmm. they have never lived one. Uh, I I think we, you know, they should be considering how they can best serve their community um, when they have actually probably no idea what 
the community and what their citizens and what their congregations are going through because they have no life experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the people are leaving the churches in droves. Um, you know, we we know particularly in Melbourne and you know, particularly around where 3CR studios are that that's the largest atheist population pretty much in Australia. Um, wow. We are becoming more and more secular in Australia. Uh, we are more and more of us are marking no religion on our census. And yet, these religious organisations still get these extraordinary privileges through tax exemptions and, um, and exemptions to the Discrimination Act. I, I think it's high time that, that we as governments were brave. And I, I put up a bill you know, to meekly remove the tax exemptions for commercial religious businesses. And I was howled down in the Parliament for it. If I get re-elected, I'll certainly bring it back on again and, and keep that conversation going. But um, you can still see that our, our governments are loath to tell to bring to bring these organisations into account. Yeah, and there's clearly a lot of resistance still. I'd just like like to use the last minute to ask you a question about the National Redress Scheme, which commenced in July. Mm. We've seen so far that only a handful of payments have been made to survivors, and additionally, some institutions are yet to sign onto the scheme. Given the fact that many survivors are not able to wait to receive compensation, such as those who are elderly and or terminally ill, how might this process be sped up? There's got to be a way that we have to force these organisations um, to the table. And at the moment, we haven't. In fact, we've just said, look, we'd love you to come to the table. We're not saying you have to come to the table. Um, I think I think we need to be much firmer with these organisations. It might require legislation. You know, listening um, to, to, um, to some of those organisations telling us how complicated it is for them because they've got so many different structures. It's like... It doesn't matter. You, you know, you formed a central organisation to try and bring these structures together. So just sign up the central organisation and you deal with your problematic structures yourself. That, that is not what the victims need. The victims should not be left waiting. I think one of the most horrendous and, you know, things that probably upsets me more than most things about that redress scheme is that anyone with a criminal record need not apply. Now we know that so many of people, so many people who um, come into, you know, come across the justice system, um, are there because of trauma? Are there because of abuse? And to say that those people, that you know, the abuse that they received led, led them down to a path of maybe um, problematic drug use, which which inevitably would have brought them into <laughs> into the justice system, um, do not qualify for. Um, uh, for, for, for redress or compensation, I, I just think it's incredibly cruel. And I think the delays that the church is continuing to do are incredibly cruel mm. and we should not allow it. Yeah, and clearly there's a lot more things to be discussed. Um, just because we have this apology doesn't mean this issue is over. Miss Patton, thank you so much no. for your time this morning. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for God's sake, the Prime Minister's setting up a museum like it's done and dusted. Yeah, yeah. Know, yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now on the line we have Kerry Lee Hiding. Kerry Lee Hiding is a proud Bindal juror and um, a core Mori woman. She's also a 3CR broadcaster. She does the show 
Black Noise Radio, which you can catch every Thursday at 2 p.m. She was also um, a previous online uh, producer of ABC's uh, Speaking Out. She was also part of the Black Critics program with Euron Boy. She's written articles for the Curry Mail. Sis has done everything. Welcome to Tuesday at Breakfast, Carrie. Hey. <laughs> Good morning, Ayan. How are you? I'm 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 well. I'm well. Thank you so much for um yeah for for coming in so uh um on such a short notice. We know you're super busy, so thank oh, you for my absolute pleasure. Squeezing so us in. So um before we uh talk about black screen and all yeah. that, can you just maybe give us a like a background? as to, like, growing up and the films that you watched and what was the landscape then compared to now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, yeah, I'm showing my age, okay, that's cool, <laughs> um, there, there wasn't a lot of black colour film made by black people. So uh, when I was growing up, my mother um, would show me films such as Jeddah. Um, you know, I went to the movies and one of my first movies I saw at the cinema when I was a young girl was Stormboy featuring David Gopalor, who's an absolute film legend in this country. Um, you know, fast mm-hmm. forward 30 years, I then go on to interview him um, at one stage for ABC. I was very lucky to speak to that lovely man, David Gopalor, who's ever so talented Um so I guess my relationship started quite young with films, um, you know, um, and and with um, not only films but photography. My mum gave me a camera quite early on in life as well. And um, I grew up and um, became a radio broadcaster and I've also gone on to make some short films for NITV, which is our National Indigenous uh, TV service. So I feel really, really lucky that I've had the opportunity to... Um, share some of our stories on screen um, in recent years, yeah. And in recent years, shows like Black Comedy have been, like, um, a huge success. Um, what is, Absolutely, yeah. What does this tell us about um, where we are and what we're interested in? Well, I guess it's we're seeing things like Black Comedy come onto our screens that we've... Uh, People like Nakaya Louie, who's um, one of our finest storytellers in the country at the moment. She does theatre as well as writes a black comedy. Um, she's just amazing. We've got these young people coming through and telling our stories the way that they want to be told. So that, that's really important. You know, we haven't got other people telling our stories now. Mm. It's the young ones coming through and, and making fantastic films, whether it be short films. Um, or, or features length films as well, which is what we're here to talk about, film. Yes. Hey. Yeah, we definitely are. And I guess yeah. that's a nice segue to Black Screens. Can you tell us um, what Black Screen is, how it got started? Yeah, sure. It's been running for quite a few years now. This is my first time that I've been involved with it. So um, um, excuse me if I get added anything out of line here. <laughs> but um, it's about the fifth one for this year. And basically it's highlighting and showcasing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, filmmakers and also uh, on-screen people as well, recognising them. So uh, it's a night that happens at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. It's happening tonight as well. So that's why we're yarning this morning, a yarn. So it kicks off about 6.30 and there'll be four short films uh, on 
on display for people to come and see. It's a free event, which yes. we love. We do yeah. love that. Yes, that's 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 exactly like the angle that I wanted to promote because we yeah. were we were talking about that earlier. Um, uh, so, sorry, off air and, and saying how there's all these like amazing events happening in Melbourne, not just yeah. in academic spaces, but in art spaces as well. And we were yeah, like, right. everything yeah. is so expensive. We want to go to everything, but like our budget, like we've got to think about. Totally. Yeah. So this Absolutely. is, this is incredible. Like we're getting quality work free and, and accessible. Exactly. Accessible for all community members. So everyone's welcome. Um, but I do need to let you know that if you do want to go tonight, anybody out there, it's going to be a great night, but you do need to book online. So um, if you go to the footscrayarts.com uh, website, you can book online um, to see four fantastic short films tonight. And we're just talking about uh, black comedy there before, Nakea mm-hmm. Louie, and um, Nakea is one of the short filmmakers uh, whose film is featuring tonight called Brown Lips. So I look forward to seeing that. Um, another one of the short films is uh, Last Drinks at Frida's, which I just love the title. Mm. My daughter's my daughter's middle name's Frida, so I'm looking oh. forward to that one. That one's uh, written by Cody Bedford and directed by Bjorn Stewart. Um, one other one I'm really looking forward to is uh, Blight, and it's a story and an historical uh, piece, feature piece that. Um, features um, a young Aboriginal woman who is used as a black tracker to track down her own people, mm. which happened a lot back in the day. Uh, I remember an old man telling me a story from up Cape York when I lived up there a couple of years ago, and um, he told me, he was very, very old, this old man, he'd rerun the community, and he, he told me of the days. He sat me down one day and told me of the days of the black trackers and how the police force actually forced him to dress up as a woman so he could um, lure the Aboriginal men and and then to be hunted down by the black tracker police. So, Mm. wow, what an amazing conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Blythe, following the story of this young Aboriginal woman who's used in this West Australian Outback piece as well. Incredible. The last film featuring tonight is by the ever so lovely uh, director, John Harvey. He's written this piece as well. It's called Water, and it's an environmental piece, I guess. Um, and it, it really is basically looking into the future. It's set in 19, set in 2047, and um, it, it's a story about this one woman who's trying to find water uh, into the future. So um, four really, really good films on offer tonight, all for free. All you need to do, as I mentioned earlier, is get online, footscrayarts.com, follow the link um, to Black Screen, and we'd love to see you there tonight. Yeah. Perfect. And we'll definitely share it on all our platforms. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, That's Terry. my pleasure. I'd also like to acknowledge and, and, and pay my respects to John Harvey uh, from Brown Cab Production, who is really behind this amazing initiative that is Black Screen. And big thanks to Footscray Community Arts Centre for supporting uh, such an important uh, community event as well. Yeah. That was Solange with MAD. Got a couple of community announcements to 
mentioned before we finish up today. And by the way, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast <laughs> on 3CR. So the first is um, a rally that's being held to protest. Um, it's being held to protest the Aboriginal representative body which is being proposed with reserved seats for only 11 of the 38 language groups um, of in- Indigenous people. It will take place at Ma on Friday the 26th of October at 1pm. And for more details on this event, you can check out the Facebook page. It's called 38 Nations Rally. The other event is being organised by the Muslim Collective and Salam Fest. They're hosting an event called She Roars, Muslim Women on Feminism and Islam, next Saturday, October 27th. It will include a panel of prominent Muslim Australian women from the world of sport, media, politics and um, academia. And that's on the 27th of October from 10 to 11am at Deakin Edge in Fed Square. Tickets are free and can be purchased online. Perfect. And two short events. One is a 3CR film, um, another 3CR film fundraiser, and it's the, for the movie Bohemian Rhapsody fundraiser, which is about the years leading up to the Queen's legendary performance at Live Aid 1985. So that's on the, so that's on the 8th of November. So Thursday, 6.30 p.m. Um, it's at Westgarth Cinemas and tickets are $20 concession and $25 full. We will share that up on our Facebook page. Um, if you're interested in um, watching the film and also supporting us. And one other event that we're very keen for is the Beyond the Bars 2018 CD launch. Um, it's on 1st of November, which is Thursday. Is that next week or the week after? I feel like that's next week. Yeah. Oh, mm. I really can't keep I up don't know. With I don't know. Actually, it's terrible. <laughs> Okay, so, but it's on, anyways, it's on 1st of November, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Yeah, next Thursday. Perfect. And it's at Mesa, which is 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. Um, And, yeah, there's there's going to be guests and discussions um, around justice, incarceration, and there will be delicious food. I've been there. It's incredible. Um, Yeah, so get down. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.